Thank you for the uh, beautiful music from all of our musicians and that wonderful special that you just heard. I'm always very thankful that we have the musicians and the talent in our church that are willing to also use that talent to worship Jesus on a weekly basis, and we get to be a part of that along with them. But this morning, if you would, join me this morning to the, in the book of Romans chapter 3. The book of Romans chapter 3, that's where we will be for this, uh, this morning's message, and we'll be going through verses 9 through 23. But before we jump into that, what I would like for us to take a look at is, and maybe think about, is how many of you have actually come to the point in the realization that there's a difference between wants and needs? Anybody ever done that? How many of you have had a conversation with your child? No, you do not need that. You just really, really want it. Yes. And coming to that realization is not necessarily what we always want to hear because wants are really what we really want. And needs often get in the way of that. Anybody know what I'm talking about here? Yes. But many times we've got to put wants off because of the things that need to happen. You know, we have this pile of wants and we have a pile of needs. And if you've been like me in the past, maybe you had the resources for one, and the, or one or the other and you find yourself juggling it and the need's not dire, so you kind of push it back a little bit because you know the resources will come back whenever, it's, whenever it becomes a dire need and the want will not be available unless you get it right now. So you go ahead and get the want, push the need away and take care of it later. Anybody ever done that before? Okay, so I'm not the only one. Good, because usually nobody agrees with me. I make myself vulnerable, and I'm, I find myself isolated. But, but, but thank you for, uh, for, for making me feel like I'm in good company. But now we have wants and we have needs, and the wants are the things we want, but nobody likes to deal with the needs. We, like whenever you have to um, uh, fix your car, because you've got to get back and forth to work, you don't want to do that. Nobody likes spending money at the mechanic shop. But however, it's a need and it has to be taken care of. You may want to put new wheels and tires on it, but now you have to put something else in your car. So therefore, the need overcomes the want. Uh, nobody likes to call the HVAC guy. If there's any HVAC guys in here, nobody likes to call you, okay? Nobody likes to make that phone call, but however, it's a necessity if you want heat and cold in your house. Nobody likes to do that. And I, and I may be alone in this one, but I don't like to pay taxes, okay? But however, that is something that needs to be done, and therefore you have to do it. And so you have to deal with that. I may want to do other things, but there are needs that need to be addressed, and therefore we must look at those things. But too often we do take needs and we kind of push them aside. You know, men are really bad about this, and I'm sure there's some ladies, but like when it comes to something with our health or something, we tend to overlook that and pretend it doesn't exist and kind of push it away don't we? We kind of put it off and put it off and put it off, maybe thinking, well, you know, it'll just go away, or rather than face the reality that there's really a problem there, you, 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 don't, you don't really deal with the need that you know is there, so you kind of push it, push it back. And if you push it back too long, what happens with a lot of our needs is that need becomes dire. I mean, it becomes something that it, cannot know, it can no longer be ignored, it can no longer be pushed aside because it is way too serious and it has to be dealt with. And say if it is an issue with your health or something like that, and you finally get to the point where, look, I, I feel like I'm dying here, and then you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, well, if you would have come earlier and taken care of this need, we probably could have done something, but now the situation has gone too far. 
there's maybe some irreversible damage that has taken place or there's really nothing we can do and it can even be fatal in that case. So needs are something that obviously have to be balanced out. Sometimes we have to balance them out with different things, but also there's other needs that have to be addressed. There are needs that, that, um, that may have to be addressed that can affect the way that you live here and can affect your life. But there's an even greater need that we all need to understand it is there. And that is the need of a savior. That is a need that everyone faces and it is the greatest need that you're ever going to be faced with. And no matter how much you push it aside or maybe want to ignore it or maybe want to put it off until the future to deal with it, that need is there. And if it pushed off too long, can bring about fatal consequences. But not just physically, but eternally fatal consequences. So that's what we're going to be addressing this morning is the need of a Savior. We all have that need, and it's something that we all need to recognize, but you may not be convinced of that yet this morning. And just as if you were to show up in a doctor's office and he were to tell you that, uh, that you have this disease and you need to go through this medical protocol and take this prescription in order to get better, most likely you won't take the prescription or the medical protocol unless you've been first convinced of what? The fact that you've got the disease or you've got the problem. None of us would undergo the surgery or none of us would take or pop pills if we, didn't, if we weren't convinced that, in fact, we have that problem. So I want to, this morning, just spend a little bit of time just showing that we all do have this need. And this is a need that we all must face. This is a need that we all need to take and understand that is a reality that we all face here. And it's not just for just a few people, but it is for all people. So starting in Romans chapter 3... Going into verse 9, now Peter is, or not Peter, but Paul is making some distinction here, some arguments between the righteous and unrighteous, the Jew and the Greek, the religious and the unreligious. And then he just categorizes them all in one pile. In verse 9, he says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. So what did he do there? He had two, two subcategories of Jews and Greeks. That encompasses everyone. And he says, guess what? Well, we can pile them all up in one pile. They are all under sin. Therefore, they all carry the same need. They have all sinned. Now, it doesn't matter who you are, where you were born, what culture you grew up in, what country, what state, what kind of a family, what church you attended. It doesn't matter. All Jew and Greek, both black and white, both male and female, old and young, rich and poor, it doesn't matter. We all fit in this category here in verse 9 that says that all are under sin. Everyone must face this reality. And as we go further into the scene, so why, are we, why have we all sinned? What is the reason by this? Is this really accountable for everybody? In verse 10 it says, as it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. We are sinners. We have an inherited sin nature. We all sin out of our own sin nature. According to what Romans chapter 5, a few pages Later in this book, says, therefore, just says, through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, 
and thus death spread to all men because all have sinned. We have a sin nature. From our father Abraham, from the Garden of Eden, from the time that he sinned against God, we have inherited the sin nature as from that time on forward. And out of that sin nature, we behave according to that nature. We sin against the very nature of God when we do so. And Jesus went as far to say, this is not what that goes into the man, but it's actually what comes out of the mouth that defiles a man. So it's what comes out, not what comes in. So it's not about cultural influences that you have that we may try to blame our actions and behaviors on. That's not the case. We are sinners who have sinned against a holy and righteous God. We have all sinned and we have this sin nature. And it's not just for a certain group of people or where you, where you may have lived or where you've grown up or your background. We all have this sin nature. But we may not be convinced. Well, let's see what Paul has to say even further. Because this sin nature actually manifests itself in many different ways. And the first thing that Paul talks about here is that the, that the sinful nature is manifested in our speech. In our speech, it goes, it goes on to say, it says, their throat is an open tomb with their tongues they have used to practice deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. When we first look at what he's talking about here, their throats is like an open tomb. That's a pretty disgusting thought, is it not? Think about the, the stench and the, and of the nasty tomb with rotten bodies and corpses in it. He says their throat is as an open tomb. With their tongues they have used to practice deceit, telling lies. And telling lies is not something that's just a, a small thing. Telling lies is, is us telling someone a lie in hopes that they believe that and then they act as if what we said was true and we send them off on a wrong path. And so this, this foundation is upon a lie. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now, we may we all know someone like this. I'm sure there's no one here. Every time someone opens their mouth, it seems to be a stabbing, poisonous, venomous type of language. That maybe even seeks to hurt people and to harm people. But the poison of asps, that's a snake, by the way. More specifically, it's the cobra, a very poisonous, venomous snake under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So yes, our sinful nature is something that we all have. And out of that sinful, na sinful nature, it manifests itself in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk. Anybody feeling singled out here <laughs> so far? So we don't have to go very far to find that we have sinned, that we have done things that go against God and His nature and go against His law. But also, not only in our speech does this sinful nature manifest itself, but it also manifests itself out in our actions and in our behavior. If we look in verse 15, it says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. The ways of destruction and misery or oppression are in them. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear before God. Since their feet is swift to shed blood, someone who's very hot-tempered and, and, um, and ready to be at someone's throat at the drop of a hat. And destruction and misery is something that they carry around with them. We all know those people, right? And it's never us. But we may have some waves of times of things like this. But destruction and misery are the way that they, these people live and the way of peace they have not known. 
But this is the one here that we should all understand. But there is no fear of God before their eyes. No fear of God. And if you really think about that for a moment, whenever we act or speak in such a way that goes against the very nature of God, we do that knowing that it is wrong. I don't think that there's anyone here who's committed sinful behavior without having an understanding that it is truly wrong. We all have a conscience that tells us. The Word of God tells us that the, that the moral law of God is written on the hearts of all people. That we know what is morally right and what is morally wrong. And whenever we commit sin, we do it knowingly. Do y'all know what the word conscience means? It's made out of two words. Con meaning with, science meaning knowledge. So anytime we sin, we do it with knowledge that it goes against God's created order. And we sin against the very nature of who God is. So this sin is what separates us. This sin that we have behaved, the, the, what we have talked about, not only is it in our speech, not only is it in our actions, but it must pass through even our thoughts before they become speech and become actions. So there's no question that we have truly sinned. So what does a sentence of sin bring about? What is the punishment for sin before a holy and righteous God? What is that? For the wages of sin is death. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. We're not just talking about a physical death alone. Yes, this body will die and it is a result of sin. The reason why we face death and sickness and illness and pain in this world is because of, because of a butterfly effect that's gone throughout history. And we are here and we are even suffering the effects of when sin entered into the world. And death is one of those things that we will not be able to overcome. We will all face death one day. But not only is it just a physical death, but the punishment of sin brings about a spiritual death, an eternal death, where your soul will exist for an eternity in a place called hell, separated from God forever and ever. And this is what we have justly earned. And before a righteous and a holy God, that is where we stand with him. We look at verse 19. As we go further into this, there may be some other thoughts that are kind of creeping through our minds. It says, now when we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. So let's go back and unpack this for a little bit. There's no question what God's law says, Right? But are we truly guilty of breaking God's law? That's what we need to ask. If sin brings about, brings about um, the justice of an eternal separation from God, then have we truly sinned against God's law? If the law of God is, is written and delivered to us, is sin actually breaking God's law? Or have I actually broken the law of God? We don't have to go very far to find that out. We've already talked about how, how speech and our actions only condemn us because of our sinful nature and our actions that go against God's word. But let's just take a look at the black and white law of God. Have we truly broken God's law? We can just take the Ten Commandments, which there are hundreds more commandments in the Old Testament other than the Ten Commandments. Well, let's just take the top ten. If we take the top ten, and we just start with number nine, which is what? What's number nine? Do not lie. Right? Do not lie. The law of God 
says, do not lie. The very law of God that was written in stone by the very finger of God before Moses, do not lie. Have any of us ever told a lie? Obviously, we all have. And sure, we've told a lie. We can go down, we can go down to the next one. Do not steal. Right. Now, regardless of the value of it and how long ago it may have been, if you've ever taken anything, it didn't belong to you, regardless of the monetary value or how long it's been ago, then you have stolen something. That makes you just a thief, right? And then this is where you start to meddle. Now, Jesus said, it's been said of old that you shall not be, commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already with her in his heart. You don't have to raise your hands. But if you've even looked with lust, we're guilty of committing adultery. Now, if you said yes to those three things, which if you, if you don't, that's fine. We already know that you're a liar, okay? But if you said yes to those three things, and I doubt that any of us could deny it, then we have self, selfly admitted that we are lying, stealing, adulterous people at heart. And if God was to judge us based just on the Ten Commandments alone, we would all be found guilty. And if we have all been found guilty, the law has done its job, that we will be found guilty before God. Now, in verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that the world may become guilty before God. What's the first thing that you do once we, once, what's the first thing that we tend to do whenever we've been accused of doing something wrong? Make excuses, right? We'll start justifying it, right? Anybody ever done that? No, the first thing we want to do is start justifying it. But the, but the truth of the matter is, no matter how much we justify, the, the law is in black and white. The law is cut and dry. There is no gray area when it comes to breaking the law. Either you did or you did not. You are innocent of, of breaking the law or you are guilty of breaking the law. There is no sliding scale here. So a lot of times we want to start to justify why we did this. Well, this is, well it shows here that this is what you did. And you know this is against the law. Well, but... Let me tell you what's happening. And we even do that even with our own sinful behaviors and actions today. We make justifications for it. Actually, it goes on in our minds even before we commit it, willingly to do so. But the law is is to make sure that every mouth is stopped and that every person becomes guilty before God. But regardless of the justification that we come up with, you know, whether it's lying, cheating, stealing. We can even look at the, one, of the greatest, one of the great stories that we, we learned growing up. It's, it's Robin Hood, right? Now, what did he do? He stole from the rich to give to the poor. Now, giving to the poor is a good thing, would you agree? But he's still a thief, right? The law is do not steal, but yet he is still, is he guilty of theft? Absolutely. He is. So no matter how we might justify something, the law makes us guilty before God. And when we stand before God, our mouths will be shut because the law is very clear. But then, but then there's this thought that, well, you know what? I think I'll be fine whenever I get there. 
I can be fine because my good has outweighed my bad. Now, this is a very common, common argument. I'm mostly a good person, right? Think about it. Think about a man who's going to court because he robbed a bank, right? They, he, the, the evidence is there. They got him on video camera. They found the money at his house. There's no getting out of it. He is truly guilty for the crime that he has been charged with. But think about all the other good stuff that he did. What would happen if he showed up in court and he told the judge, Judge, yes, I, I, I robbed this one bank, but look at all the other ones that I didn't rob. Look at all these things that I didn't rob. I mean, that, that's good, right? He says, yes, that's good that you didn't rob them, but you are still guilty for robbing this one bank. And therefore, the guilt of, the, of breaking the law brings about the punishment that he rightly and truly deserves. And no matter how good we, we may be, we may, we may look at our lives and decide to turn over a new leaf and do good deeds and feed the poor and help the homeless and come to church every Sunday and do everything that we possibly can, completely give of ourselves for the good causes that we try to, try to make. And we do everything that we possibly can. But let me ask you a question. Will any, will, would, a, would, a, would an unending list of good things ever undo one sinful behavior? No, it can't. Because good deeds cannot go back in time and erase what has already been done. So therefore, we will all stand before God guilty one day unless something happens. Now this truly puts us in a position that we are guilty before God. And if God was to judge us according to the commands of the Word of God, that we'll stand before Him guilty. And if we are found guilty then we deserve to be, be separated from him in hell forever. This is a very bad place for us to be. This puts us in a position where we want to grab out for something that's going to help us or someone that is going to help us. But in looking at this passage, we must keep in mind that the whole point of this passage is not to look down on men or not to, not to look down with a cynical contempt on men. It's not to bring... Po- bring a person or men to a hopeless point of despair, leaving him with his head hanged low. But we must understand that we must never minimize sin lest we neglect and ignore the need that is truly there. Our sinful condition must be, brings about a need that needs to be addressed. But we all have sinned. We all possess a sinful nature that has shown itself in our speech, in our actions, in our thoughts. And because of that, we all stand before God guilty. A lot of, a lot of others may say, well, you know, God is a, give, a forgiving God. God is a loving God. And you are 100% right. He is. He is a forgiving God. He is a loving God. He is a God of righteousness. He is a God of justice. He is a good God. And therefore, being a good, righteous, and holy, and just God, he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. He cannot. His justice must be satisfied or he ceases to be good. If he lets one sin go unpunished, he ceases to be good. None of us wants a judge in our town or in our county that just lets guilty people off. We would call that a bad judge, wouldn't we? Well, God is a good judge. He must judge sin, and therefore he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. And if we stand before him guilty, we stand under the very wrath of God.
I don't know about you guys, but if I'm left in this position, I, I need help. <laughs> and if sin is transgressing against the law of God, and transgressing against the law of God brings about death, not only physical death, but an eternal death separated from him in a place called hell, if that is true, then I want help. I need help. I need someone to save me from such a condition. Why do I need someone to save me from such a condition? Why can't I get out on my own? In verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And there again, no matter how much good we do, we cannot justify ourselves by our own work because we ourselves will always be guilty of breaking God's law. And God will always be righteous and just. So is there hope for us? Is there hope for all of mankind? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All are sinners. Well, there is. In verse 21, it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Not only have all sinned, not only have all have the sin nature, not, a, not only are all guilty before God, but all can be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. If we find ourselves in a situation that we can't get ourselves out of, the courtroom illustration that is used by Ray Comfort I think is a very good one. If we find ourselves in a courtroom guilty of a crime that we have committed, the evidence is there, there's no way that we can argue it, we are found guilty, and the fine is a million dollars, or it's a price that I can't pay, <laughs> or you spend a lifetime in prison. But you don't want to spend a lifetime in prison, but you can't pay the debt to get out. What is your only hope besides going to prison? Not only do you have to, you have to know someone who can pay the fine for you, you have to know someone who's willing to pay the fine for you, and you must be willing to receive that gift to be paid in your, in your place. But even though I may not know someone who's got a million dollars, I don't know somebody who can pay that debt. I don't know anybody who'd be willing to write me a million dollar check. But I do know someone who can and is willing and did pay for my sin debt. There was someone who suffered the very wrath of God in my place. And that man's name was Jesus Christ. Jesus became a man. God became a man in flesh. We're going into the season in the next month or two. We're going to celebrate that exact event where God became flesh and he dwelt among men. And we beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He came and he lived a perfect, sinless life. A life that was in the perfect will of God the Father, never stepping out of his perfect will. A sinless man that he was. And though we learned that the wages of sin is death, but where do we find Jesus? We find him on the cross, suffering and dying. Why is he dying if in fact he was sinless? Well, he was dying for me and for you. See, death is 
the just punishment for sin. And Jesus said, I'm willing and I can pay that price for you. And I love you so much that I am going to do it. And he stretched himself out on the cross. And as he was on the cross, God poured his judgment and wrath upon his son Jesus. The, the punishment that you and I deserved. The sentence of death was placed on Jesus Christ for the sins of the entire world. And the Son of God gave up his life. And he died there on that cross. Paid in full. And he was buried for three days. And he was resurrected to life again. Jesus is who he said he was. He did what he said he was going to do. And he has ascended to the Father, and he wants a relationship with each and every one of you. The sin debt has been paid. It is being offered. Now, does that mean it's just automatic for everyone? The debt's been paid, right? Well, in a sense, Jesus has put the ball back in your court. It says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all, but, and on all who believe. And then Paul goes in here and makes, makes sure that there's no distinction between persons here. He says, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When we come to the knowledge that we have sinned against the holy and righteous God and we stand before him guilty, are we willing to surrender our lives to him? Are we willing to repent of our sins and trust in the work that Jesus Christ did? And some of us may have been going through life putting our trust in our faith and our works and our baptism and our church attendance and the fact that we're just being a good person or being an honest person, being good to our wives and our children. But all in all, that will not erase a lifetime of guilt before an almighty God. We can only do, get that by going through Jesus Christ, his son. Jesus is the one who paid the fine. We must receive that gift that he's offered through his son, Jesus Christ, by repenting of our sins and trusting in the work of, of, work of Calvary that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Nothing else will get us there. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except by me. You know, a lot of people want to say, well, that's just a closed-minded view of religion. Well, in a sense, it certainly is, if it is true. And if what Jesus said is true, it is the way. So we can't come to God on our terms. We can only come to God on his terms. He has paid the price. We rejected Christ. We sinned against him. We put ourselves in this position, but out of his love and mercy for us, he has made a way that we can be reconciled back to the Father through the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross of Calvary for each and every one of us. And then if we are willing to repent of our sins, turn away from our sinful actions and deeds and thoughts and, and seek forgiveness from God the Father through Jesus Christ, the Bible says, for whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Oh, we need a Savior, folks. And God has provided that Savior. If you're hearing this for the first time, maybe this evening, or maybe it's come across your heart that this is something that you've never done before, if truly is trusted in this work of Jesus Christ. I pray that this time of invitation as our musicians come forward, and we prepare for this time, I pray that you would just make that decision 
to fully repent of your sins and trust in Jesus because he is the only way. And then what's great about it is though you may have stood before God guilty and under the law, whenever the blood of Jesus Christ washes away your sins, when you stand before God on judgment day, his son Jesus will present to you, to the Father, innocent as though you have never sinned and you'll be able to enter into his heaven and be with him forever. What's the decision for you this morning? Let's stand as we pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. God, we just want to praise you for the work of Jesus Christ. Father, we're so thankful that you love sinners, you love people, and that you've given us a way to be reconciled to you, Father. And Father, as you're drawing the hearts of those who may, may not be believers today, Father, I pray that they will do so before it's everlasting too late. May there be no one here pushing off this need, though they may have been pushing it off in the past. But Father, I pray that you would just draw their hearts to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.